I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. I am your host, Kurt Sandig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, we'll be talking about mysterious artifacts. Many objects on this list still don't have an explanation, but then again, there may be one or two that might have been explained, and I'll let you decide. This one will be a little bit different for a couple of reasons. The first is that there's so many artifacts I want to tell you about that I'll be doing a two-part episode. Part two will be out next week. And the other reason this one is a little bit different is that you can see a photo of each artifact on our Facebook and Instagram pages. Both are Paranormal Almanac. So either listen to this by itself or do a modern podcast version of Show and Tell and look at the items as I tell the story. First up is a very small, seemingly insignificant figurine known as the Nampa figurine. The year was 1889, a group of workers searching for water near the town of Nampa in southwest Idaho. While drilling a well, they drilled a borehole down about 295 feet, at which point their steam pump began to spit out bits of clay, and amongst the projectiles, the workers discovered a tiny clay form, about the size of a dime and this form appeared to be in the shape of a skinny, clothed woman. Now, this isn't just something natural that happens to look like a woman. This was a carved female figurine. For perspective, at a depth of around 90 meters, dates back to the Pleistocene era, or around 2 million years ago. You heard that right. The depth they found that figurine is from 2 million years ago. The Nampa figurine is about 37 millimeters long and appears to be a representation of a clothed woman. The surface had concretions of iron and patches of anhydrous red oxide. Clay balls were found at the same general depth displaying similar iron oxide discoloration. American archaeologists at the time of the discovery believed that there were similarities between this figure and those of the upper Paleolithic Europe but these have been discounted in more recent times based on details, so I won't really get into what that exactly means. It's not very important to this story. Archaeologists agreed that the figurine had spent a considerable time below the ground at the site. However, we don't know how well sealed the clay layer was by the basalt at this spot, so theoretically, it is possible that the figurine was underground and just pushed down by the drill bit, or perhaps through irrigation, made its way further down into the strata. But if indeed it is that old, two million years old that is, then it rewrites human history as we know it. Who was around nearly two million years ago to create such a figurine? There shouldn't be anything like this past 3,000 years at most in America. Plus, if the Nampa figurine is authentically that old, we should be finding similar objects, if not in North America, then somewhere else in the world. And we aren't. As easy as it is to say that the figurine was pushed down by the drill, scientifically speaking, the presence of iron on the surface of the figurine indicates that it is of ancient origin and could not have been hoaxed or merely made its way that far underground. This iron suggests that the figurine really is that old, and many scientists who have investigated the incident shortly after the discovery agree that the figurine is authentic and of very, very ancient origins from a tiny figurine to a mysterious sphere. Next up is the Betts Sphere. On March 27, 1974, members of the Betts family were in Florida inspecting the damage done by a small brush fire near their property on Fort George Island. 
The island is a patch of dry ground among the coastal marshlands of northeastern Florida. Antoine and Jerry Betts, accompanied by their 21-year-old son, Terry, stumbled upon something that they had never seen before or since. A bright metal globe, about the size of a bowling ball, and it was just sitting there in the grass. It was quite heavy, but otherwise unremarkable. They guessed it might have been an old cannonball. The Bets took the ball home and basically forgot about it, and son Terry was playing guitar, and the ball happened to be in the same room. Oddly, the ball resonated the music, and as if that wasn't weird enough, the ball began to move around all on its own. The understandably shocked Betzes started to experiment with it. They placed it on their table and watched it navigate its way around the perimeter without ever falling off. The ball seemed to be possessed or haunted as doors began slamming themselves closed around the house. Mysterious organ music also filled the residence, even though there was no organ. Finally, the Betzes had had enough, and they contacted the local newspaper and hoped that someone might be able to tell them what this bizarre artifact was. The Jacksonville Journal sent a photographer, Lou Egner, and Mrs. Betts told him to put the spear on the floor. He said it rolled away and then stopped. So what? She said, just wait a minute. And then he goes on to say, it turned by itself, rolled to the right about four feet, it stopped. Then it turned around again, rolled to the left about eight feet, made a big arc, and came right back to my feet. What followed, obviously, was something of a media frenzy. One of the many callers to the Betts' front door was Carl Wilson from a holistic institute in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, called Omega One. Wilson spent six hours examining the ball at the Betts' home and reported not only had it had powerful magnetic field, but it was also transmitting a radio signal. So this kind of rules out a haunted object, but it did seem to have a mind of its own. So exactly what was it? Mrs. Betts called the U.S. Navy base directly across the water from the island and asked if they could examine it. Perhaps it was theirs. They did, but returned it to the Betzes once they verified it was not Navy property. They x-rayed it and did a metallurgical test and found it to be a high-grade yet common stainless steel, hollow with a shell approximately one-half inch thick, measured about eight inches in diameter, and weighed 21.34 pounds. Following the wave of newspaper reports, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, a ufologist and astronomer at Northwestern University in Chicago, contacted the Betts family and asked if he could examine the ball. However, since he was all the way up in Chicago, and they were all the way down in Florida, nobody wanted to take the risk of shipping it. But as luck would have it, Dr. Hynek was in New Orleans, Louisiana the following week for a meeting with the National Enquirer, which is a tabloid that is not very reputable in America. But the tabloid was establishing a $50,000 prize for definitive proof of aliens. Since Hynek and several other scientists on the Enquirer's panel were still there, Terry Betts and his sister drove out from Florida to show them the ball in person. Hynek's 1972 book, The UFO Experience, A Scientific Inquiry, had made him perhaps the most popularly known ufologist of that day. But on the Betts' sphere, his verdict was a disappointing one. According to a report in the St. Petersburg Independent, Hynek says none of the five scientists now think the ball is anything but man-made. None will go so far as to say it's extraterrestrial. They would be putting their scientific reputations on the line. Unfortunately, there is no mention of what tests that he and the other ufologists did. Did it resonate or play music or slam doors or roll around on its own in front of them? Unfortunately, I personally can't find anything about their tests, so we may never know. Now, there are a couple of theories about what the Betzosphere could be. One theory was that it was a bladder tank used on a spacecraft. 
These metal spheres contain a flexible bladder full of rocket fuel such as hydrazine, and the sphere is filled with pressurized gas to keep a constant squeeze on the bladder. When fuel is needed, a valve opens and the fuel squirts out. And these tanks have a reputation for surviving when spacecraft deorbit and burn up on reentry. In fact, one fell on Namibia in 2011. But bladder tanks are usually a little bit bigger and lighter than the Betzosphere, but they're in the general ballpark. However, they have the obvious couplings where the fuel comes out, and the Betzosphere only marking was much too small and completely inconsistent with a large valve coupling. So it doesn't fit that description. It has been ruled out that it was a bladder tank from a spacecraft. Another theory is that it was part of an art display that had fallen off the back of a Volkswagen bus on the way to being displayed. But again, if that is the case, how is this man-made metallic sphere capable of going around the outer ring of a table without falling off and changing directions on its own, rolling around on its own in the house? There are a couple of people who say that it's such a well-made, balanced ball that it was just following the directions of the floor. But I disagree. It doesn't change the direction on its own for that long or follow the edge of the table for that long without falling over, which apparently it never did. Some authors, also following the assumption that it fell from outer space, have suggested that it was a Sputnik or a Sputnik-like satellite. This was largely based on what Carl Wilson had said, that it transmitted a radio signal. The ball was obviously a poor match for Sputnik, if you've ever seen a picture of Sputnik. It had no antenna, seams, rivets, mechanical connections, or anything else that characterized Sputnik's globe. Now here's where it gets sad. Unfortunately, we may never know what this sphere is, because as hard as I tried, I can't find where the sphere is now. There is no mention of the sphere at all in the past 10 to 15 years. One man, Robert Edwards, president of a Jacksonville, Florida equipment supply company, was shown a picture of the sphere, and he said it, it does look like the spheres that are manufactured by Bell & Howell in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Edwards said that the reporter that showed him the photo uncrated one of these spheres, weighed and measured it, and found that it was indeed 8 inches across and weighed just over 21 pounds, exactly the same as the Betz's sphere. He said, I'm not saying that this thing didn't come from outer space because I've never seen it. All I'm saying is the physical description of it matches exactly the type of ball that we have in stock that is made by Bell & Howell. But he never laid eyes on the Betz's sphere. So again, before we move on from the Betzosphere, please, anyone, any of you skeptics out there that are saying it was just a man-made sphere, it's no big deal, please tell me how could a ball reportedly move by itself, roll uphill, make organ music, transmit radio signals, slam doors, resonate with guitars, traverse around the edges of a table and on the floor and make its own directions. Tell me how it did that. I would love to know. I would love to be a skeptic with you and say, it's just a man-made object. But I'm at a loss on this one. And sadly, this one will probably remain a mystery because the sphere is nowhere to be found anymore. Okay, let's move on from a sphere to a dodecahedra. The Roman dodecahedra. The Roman dodecahedron is a small, hollow object made of bronze, or sometimes more rarely stone, with a geometrical shape that has 12 flat faces. Each face is a pentagon, which, in case you don't know, is a five-sided shape. The Roman dodecahedra are also embellished with a series of knobs on each corner point of the pentagon. And the pentagon faces, in most cases, contain circular holes in them. 
I know it's very hard to kind of picture this, especially with my horrible description of them. So this is one I definitely recommend you take a look at on our Facebook or our Instagram so you kind of get an idea of this as I'm telling the story. But anyhow, more than 200 years after they were first discovered, researchers are no closer to the understanding of the origin and the function of this mysterious object. The Roman dodecahedra date from the 2nd or 3rd centuries AD and typically range from 4 centimeters to 11 centimeters in size. To date, more than 100 of these artifacts have, have been found across Great Britain, Belgium, Germany, France, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Austria, Switzerland, and Hungary. They're found everywhere. They're often found within treasure chests as well, so they were highly sought after. The great mystery is, how do they work and what do they do? Unfortunately, there is no documentation or notes about them from the time of their creation. So the function of these dodecahedra has not been determined. Nevertheless, many theories and speculations have been put forward over the centuries. There are simple ones like it's a candlestick holder. Wax was found inside one example. They could be dice, survey instruments, device for determining the optimal sowing date for the winter grains. They could be gauges to calibrate water pipes or standard army bases. They could be a staff or a scepter decoration, a toy to throw and catch on a stick, or simply a sculpture. Now, among these speculations, some deserve a little bit more attention. One of the most accepted theories is that the Roman dodecahedron was used as a measuring device, more precisely as a range measuring object on the battlefield. The hypothesis is that the dodecahedron was used for calculating the trajectories of projectiles. Now, this could explain the different sizes holes on the pentagrams. A similar theory involves the dodecahedra as a surveying and leveling device. However, neither of these theories have been supported by any proof, and exactly how the dodecahedron could be used for these purposes has not fully been explained. Another interesting theory is the proposal that the dodecahedra was an astronomic measuring instrument for determining the optimal sowing date for winter grains. According to GMC Wagemans, the dodecahedron was an astronomic measuring instrument with which the angle of the sunlight can be measured and thereby one specific date in springtime and one date in the autumn can be determined with accuracy. The dates that can be measured were probably important for the agriculture. Nevertheless, opponents of this theory have pointed out that use of a measuring instrument of any kind seems to be prohibited by the fact that the dodecahedra were not standardized and come in many different sizes and arrangements. While investigating these online, I did find a theory that I thought was actually quite interesting. If you go to YouTube and you type in Roman dodecahedra, there is a theory, even though it's unproven, that the dodecahedra is used as a knitting tool. And again, based on these YouTube videos that you can see, it does work to make the fingers for a glove. Is that all the dodecahedras are? They're just knitting tools? Again, until we can find some texts that prove otherwise, we may never know what they were used for. The next three kind of go together, even though they were found hundreds, if not thousands of miles apart. First up, a plug in a rock, or as it's known, the Enigma Lith. Now this discovery was made in 1998 when electrical engineer John J. Williams found what appeared to be an electrical connector protruding from the ground on a hiking trip in North America. The object was found in the middle of nowhere, far away from human settlements, industrial complexes, airports, factories, and electronic or nuclear plants. After digging further into the ground, Williams discovered a device with a triple plug 
that was embedded into the rock. Not just glued into a rock, but part of the rock. Williams refused to give away the exact location where the object was found, which has led skeptics to conclude that this artifact is somehow just another hoax. And being that he was an electrical engineer, perhaps John Williams is the one who's doing the hoax. But is it? Today, the artifact is referred to as Enigmalith or the Petrodox, a device that has the undeniable aspect of an electrical component which ended up embedded into solid granite, which is a stone composed of quartz and feldspar with small traces of mica. There is a huge amount of secrecy surrounding this object. Williams has received offers of up to $500,000 for the device, but has refused to sell it. Williams stated that the artifact, however, is available to any researchers for analysis. So far, only a few individuals have taken the time to study the mysterious object, which they say, without a doubt, resembles an electrical component. Let me pause right there in the story to say, if Williams did make this one, if, he was, if it was just a hoax that he made, and he has legitimately been offered $500,000 for his hoax, my thought is that he would definitely sell it. Okay, here's this rock that I made. Give me $500,000. So that's why I'm kind of leaning towards it's not a hoax. We just don't know what it is yet. But anyhow, back to the story. The Petrodox is not an accretion, concretion, pumice, or a fossil. It does not contain any known resins, cement, glues, adhesives, limestone, mortar, or other non-granite binding agents. What we do know is that it's very hard and it seems to be fused with the rock. It is part of the rock. The component itself is about eight millimeters in diameter. The pins of the device are about three millimeters high and the spacing between the pins is approximately two and a half millimeters and the pin thickness is about one millimeter. According to Williams, who has consulted an engineer and a geologist to examine the object, the electronic component embedded in the granite reveals no trace of having been glued or welded in any form, like we said. It is very clear that the object already existed at the time of the formation of the rock, and researchers believe that the rock is at least 100,000 years old. So like the Namba figurine, this seems impossible. How and why could someone make what looks like a wall plug 100,000 years ago? What was it for? Was there some advanced civilization 100,000 years ago, as many conspiracy theorists suggest? Many believe that, like Atlantis, mankind used to be very advanced, then some cataclysmic event, like a nuclear war, happened and took us back to the Stone Age. But is this evidence of an ancient, advanced civilization? All right, let's delve into the device. Williams is willing to let researchers authenticate it under certain conditions that he's present during the analysis, and that the rock remains unharmed. It has been compared by some researchers to an electronic XLR connector or similar component. The artifact has a weak magnetic attraction, and ohmmeter readings indicate either an open circuit or a very high impedance between the pins. And I know to a lot of you that means absolutely nothing. It's scientific gibberish, but it is kind of interesting. If it has an open circuit or a very high impedance between the pins, that means there is something electrical to it. The artifact does not seem to be made out of wood, plastic, metal, rubber, or any other recognizable materials. Williams has not allowed the object to be broken in half for analysis, but x-ray tests have shown that the artifact has a mysterious, opaque internal structure in the center of the stone. Again, independent researchers have investigated this. They can't find any way that this object was glued or added to the stone 
after the fact. It was part of the stone. According to Williams, metal blobs of a metal-like material were on the pins, so it does indicate that some metal object near the Petrodox was subjected to such high temperatures to cause metal melting and molten metal splashing. Again, it does sound like some form of an electronic component. Now, obviously, skeptics, and I know you're out there listening to this too, firmly believe that this one is a hoax. But how was it made without using any adhesives, and why wasn't it debunked immediately after being x-rayed? Again, I'm not here to give you answers, and I don't expect you to believe any of these objects, but even after independent scientific analysis, they're still mysterious and unknown as to what they are or who made them. Now let's move on to the next one. It's the aptly named Screw in a Rock, and this one starts on October 7th, 1996. A group of researchers were participating in an expedition, My Cosmopoisk, trying to find the fragments of a celestial body that fell in the Kaluga region in western Russia. And I'm sure I screwed up the name of that, and I apologize to any Russians listening. When Dmitry Kirkhoff, who discovered the stone, removed the dirt from it, he saw a bolt embedded in the rock. The screw, which is clearly visible in the head and the nut, and has a length of about 2 centimeters and a diameter of about 3 millimeters. Scientists initially thought that the screw was in a farm machine, but further examination revealed that the screw was firmly fixed into the rock and it has been there for a very, very, quote, very long time. How long? Well, geologists estimate that the age of the rock is 300 to 320 million years old, and that the screw is certainly part of the rock. Again, we've gone even farther back than the Namba figurine now, from 200 million years to now almost 320 million years. Some scientists think that it's just a fossilized sea creature called a crinoid. And I have to admit, it does kind of look like a crinoid. The screw-like shape may actually be the reversed shape of the creature, which gradually dissolved while the rock formed around it. Some 600 species of crinoids are now extinct, but the creatures live on in different forms in modern seas. They have five arms to snatch passing prey and a hidden mouth on the top. But according to the men who found it, this particular screw has been determined to be made of metal and certainly not from a living creature. In fact, after x-raying it, they believe there is another hidden screw inside the stone. Now let me pause to say that unlike the Betz sphere, there is a ton of speculation and little to no independent research done on this screw that I can find. But since it's my show, let me just remind you of last week's episode about the time travelers. And one specific time traveler, Madman Mike Markham. He threw screws into his time machine and they disappeared, never to be found again. So who knows, maybe, just maybe, that screw traveled a lot farther back in time and was just found about halfway around the world embedded into a rock. Sure, it's not the most plausible theory and it's way out there, but is it any more out there than actually finding a metallic screw embedded into a 300 million year old rock with another screw even further into the rock? I'm just saying, if we're throwing theories out there, that's mine. From a screw in a rock to a hammer in a rock. This is the London Hammer, also known as the London Artifact. And unlike the name, I guarantee you, you have guessed wrong where this was found. But the London Artifact is a name given to a hammer made out of iron and wood that was found in London, Texas. That's right, London, Texas in 1936. Part of the hammer is embedded in a limey rock concretion, and this one is about 400 million years old, and it's certainly no fossilized creature. It is definitely a hammer, and it does indeed appear to be coming out of the rock. 
The hammer was purportedly found by a local couple, Max Hahn and his wife, while out walking along the course of the Red Creek near the town of London, Texas. They spotted a curious piece of loose rock with a bit of wood apparently embedded in it and took it home with them. A decade later, their son Max broke open the rock to find the concealed hammerhead within. The metal hammerhead is approximately six inches long and has a diameter of one inch, leading some to suggest that this hammer was not used for large projects, but rather for fine works or soft metal. The metal of the hammerhead has been confirmed to consist of 96.6% iron, 2.6% chlorine, and 0.74% sulfur. Also oddly enough, the hammerhead has not rusted since its discovery in the mid-1930s. Other observers had noted that the hammerhead is stylistically consistent with the typical American tools manufactured in that region in the late 1800s. One possible explanation for the artifact, one possible explanation for the artifact is that the highly soluble minerals in the ancient limestone may have formed a concretion around the object via a common process like that of a petrifying well, which often creates similar encrustations around fossils. So is this all there is to this oddity? I'm going to go out on a limb and trust science on this one and say yes. It's weird, it's neat looking, but it is not a 400 million year old hammer. This one is not proof of some ancient civilization that lost their hammer. It is exactly what the scientists say. The ancient limestone has formed a concretion around the object, which makes it look like it was part of it 400 million years ago. So in my opinion, and science's opinion, the London hammer is interesting and neat, but not legit. Next up, we have the Koso artifact. This one might have an explanation, and by might, again, I'm going to go with science on this one too, but let me get to the story first. It's called the Koso artifact, and it's an object claimed by its discoverers to be a spark plug found encased in a lump of hard clay or rock on February 13, 1961. It was found by Wallace Lane, Virginia Maxey, and Mike Mikesell while they were prospecting for geodes near the town of Olancha, California. How did a spark plug become encased in a 500,000-year-old geode? Well, it became encased in a concretion composed of iron derived from the rusting spark plug. Science! Just like the London Hammer, science! You see, it's typical of iron and steel artifacts to rapidly form iron oxide concretions around them as they rust in the ground. This one seems really easy to explain and is way less mysterious now, but wow, do a lot of websites think it's proof of a time-traveling spark plug or something. Oh, and by the way, the spark plug is a 1920s era champion spark plug, which was widely used in the Model T and Model A engines. So it has had time to form the iron oxide concretions around it. So this one, again, is case closed, not mysterious. The Koso artifact, in my opinion and science's opinion, is solved. And finally, we have one of my favorites. I have been intrigued by the Voynich Manuscript for as long as I can remember. As soon as I read about the Voynich Manuscript, I was hooked. Now you might be asking, what exactly is the Voynich Manuscript? Well, it's a book, but not just any book. The Voynich Manuscript is a weirdly illustrated, and I mean very weirdly illustrated, 15th century book and it has been the subject of speculation and conspiracy theories since its discovery in 1912. Why? Well, the Voynich Manuscript is an illustrated codex full of astrological charts, strange plants, naked ladies bathing in green liquid, but most famously, it is handwritten in an unknown language, 
This language has eluded cryptographers to this day. The vellum on which it's written has been carbon dated to around 1404 to 1438, and it may have been composed in northern Italy during the Italian Renaissance. It is named after Wilfred Voynich, a Polish book dealer who purchased it again in 1912. So it's definitely old, and it's also not complete. Some of the pages are missing, with around 240 remaining. The text is written from left to right, and most of the pages have illustrations or diagrams, with some pages being the foldable sheets where they keep unfolding out to a very, very large page. Radiocarbon dating of samples from various parts of the manuscript was performed at the University of Arizona in 2009. The results were consistent for all samples tested and indicated a date between, again, 1404 and 1438, so it is genuinely from the 1400s. The goatskin bindings and covers are not original to the book, but date to its possession by the Collegio Romano, and we'll get to that in a second. Insect holes are present on the first and last folios of the manuscript in the current order and suggest that a wooden cover was present before the later covers. What we do know about the Voynich manuscript is that its first confirmed owner was George Beresh, an alchemist from Prague. He sent off pages to the Collegio Romano because they had published an Egyptian dictionary claiming to have deciphered the Egyptian hieroglyphs. So he was hoping maybe they could decipher this book as well. It is not known whether the scholar Athanasius Kircher from the Collegio Romano had answered these requests, but he was apparently interested enough to try to acquire the book. Upon Beresh's death, the manuscript passed to his friend Jean Marek Marcy. A few years later, Marcy sent a book to Kircher at the Collegio Romano. A letter written on August 19, 1665 or 1666 was found inside the cover of the Voynich manuscript and accompanied it when Marcus sent it to Kircher. It claims that the book once belonged to the Emperor Rudolf II, who paid 600 gold ducats for it. The letter was written in Latin and has been translated to English. The book was then given or lent to the head of Rudolf's botanical gardens in Prague, probably as part of the debt that Rudolf II owed upon his death. So this manuscript has passed hands numerous times. From there, though, there are no records of the book for the next 200 years. But in all likelihood, it was probably stored with the rest of Kircher's correspondence in the library of the Collegio Romano. It probably remained there until the troops of Victor Emmanuel II of Italy captured the city in 1870 and annexed the Papal States. The new Italian government decided to confiscate many properties of the church, including the Library of the Collegio. From there, we'll move to 1903. The Society of Jesus, the Collegio Romano, was short of money and decided to sell some of its holdings discreetly to the Vatican Library. The sale then took place in 1912, However, books listed for that sale were missing, and this is where Wilfred Voynich acquired 30 of these manuscripts, and among them is the Voynich Manuscript. He spent the next seven years attempting to interest scholars in deciphering the script while he worked to determine the origins of the manuscript himself. In 1930, the manuscript was inherited after Wilfred's death by his widow, Ethel Voynich. The Voynich manuscript has been studied by many professional and amateur cryptographers, including American and British codebreakers from both World War I and World War II. No one has yet conclusively deciphered the text, and it has become a famous case in the history of cryptography. Now I know what you're thinking. I just read something about this online. They just solved this. But did they? In 2017, Time's Literary Supplement published as its cover story, A Solution for the Voynich Manuscript. I read the article myself, and I was just as happy as everybody else saying they finally figured out, they finally solved the Voyage manuscript. But let's find out if they did. 
The article by Nicholas Gibbs suggests that the manuscript is a medieval woman's health manual copied from several older sources. And a cipher is no cipher at all, but simply abbreviations that once decoded turns out to be medicinal recipes. Gibbs claimed that he deciphered the Voynich manuscript and that it was just that, just a women's health manual whose odd script was just a bunch of Latin abbreviations. That's right, Latin abbreviations. He provided two lines of translation from the text to prove his point. However, though, this isn't exactly sitting well with people who actually read medieval Latin. Medieval Academy of America director Lisa Fagan Davis told the Atlantic's Sarah Zhang they're not grammatically correct. It doesn't result in Latin that makes any sense. She added, frankly, I'm a little surprised that the Times Literary Supplement published this. If they had simply sent it to the Beinecke Library, it would have been rebuted in a heartbeat. The Beinecke Library at Yale is where the Voynich manuscript is currently kept. Davis noted that a big part of Gibbs's claims rest on the idea that the Voynich manuscript once had an index that would provide a key to the abbreviations. Unfortunately, though, he has no evidence for this index other than the fact that the book does have a few missing pages. Now, he might not be wrong, though. The idea that the book is a medical treatise on women's health might turn out to be correct, but it wasn't Gibbs' discovery at all. Many scholars and amateur sleuths had already reached that conclusion years ago using the same evidence that Gibbs did. Eventually, Gibbs rolled together a bunch of already existing scholarships and did a highly, highly speculative translation without even consulting the very librarians at the institute where the book resides. So while some of it might have been solved, the majority of the Voynich manuscript and who actually wrote it are very much still a mystery. So with that, don't believe everything you hear on the internet. There certainly are some very bizarre things out there with no scientific explanations, but there are also some that have very scientific explanations that are supposedly unexplained. And, like the Voynich Manuscript, some that have been quote-unquote solved that turn out to be anything but solved. Like I said at the beginning of this edition, there are many of these artifacts, though, and I already have another list, so expect a second edition very, very soon. As always... Thanks to everyone who have subscribed and reviewed Paranormal Almanac on iTunes, and thanks to everyone for listening and sharing. I couldn't do this without your support. Sharing my podcast with your friends and family is the best gift you could give me. Without your support, I wouldn't be doing this. So please head on over to Facebook and Instagram, both again, Paranormal Almanac, to see pictures of each of these artifacts. And while you're on there, please say hi. I love chatting with all of you. Once again, I'm Kurt Sandvig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Paranormal Almanac.